iTunes. Um, we're up to almost 140 presentations of CSP on iTunes, and we have people from around the world who are apparently learning from CSP. So please go to iTunes and share the site with other people. Our lectures from this weekend, will, this retreat will be up there as well shortly. Okay, our morning topic, building a meaningful life, and today's topic is modern lessons from ancient sources. I'm going to ha hand out the ancient sources. While the sources are going out, I'll give you a little bio of Rabbi Feinstein. His claim to fame, by the way, he is the only repeat speaker at a CSP adult retreat. Yeah. I saw it on his website, so I know it's... Uh, yeah. And his headline at USCJ. That was, that was, that was a big one, too. Right? Soundbite, right? Is there any press here today? There should, you have to share. No press, so there you go. I didn't invite any. I just was just checking. I'm sure it will. The Laguna, what's the Laguna paper? The Laguna Times. After this program, we're going to head into the uh, lunchroom where we'll say mozi led by Joe Bame, and then we are going to enjoy a nice lunch, okay? While we're having lunch, the New England Patriots will be playing Denver, so we're going to put in a special prayer for the Patriots. I appreciate it. <laughs> rabbi Feinstein is senior rabbi of Valley Beth Shalom in Encino, California. He serves in the faculty of the Ziegler Rabbinical School of the American Jewish University, the Wexner Heritage Program, the Shalom Hartman Institute of Jerusalem, and lectures widely across the United States. He's author of three books, Tough Questions Jew Jews Ask, A Young Adult's Guide to Building a Jewish Life, he was, uh, which is one of them, I guess. Uh, which, well, sorry, which book was chosen for the uh, American Library Association's top 10 books on religion for young readers? He also authored Jews and Judaism in the 21st Century, Human Responsibility, The Presence of God and the Future of the, of the Covenant, and then Capturing the Moon. He graduated uh, with honors from the University of California at Santa Cruz, the University of Judaism, Columbia University Teachers College, and the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, where he was ordained as a rabbi in 1981. He is currently, well, I don't know if this is up there. Are you currently completing or have you completed? Currently completing his doctoral degree? Forever. Forever. <laughs> his life's work is his doctoral degree at the Jewish Theological Seminaries, Davidson School of Jewish Education. I never know what things, what's out of date. The Feinsteins are blessed with three college-age children. Are they still in college or are they? No, they're out now. Right. They're out of work. Three unemployed <laughs> graduates who live with him and his wife, Nina, in their home in their bungalow in Encino. <laughs> An engaging lecturer and storyteller, Feinstein unites the ancient Jewish love of ideas with the warmth of Jewish humor. And every Friday, I assume he still does it, he bakes brownies from a recipe revealed to his ancestors at Mount Sinai. With that, Rabbi Feinstein, welcome back. Thank you. Tell me when you want to finish. I can just keep talking until the Messiah comes. I'm going to move this back a little bit. Is that okay? I like to readjust rooms. In fact, what I think I'm going to do is actually move over here. First of all, to the McDonald's and to the Bain family, thank you so much for your kindness. It is a privilege to be back with you. In our business, and Rabbi Spitz is here so he can testify to the truth of this, it's a great honor to be invited the first time. It's an absolute miracle to be invited back. <laughs> Most of us, thank you so much. Thanks, Kendall. Thanks. 
Most of us get invited once and you say something to piss somebody off and they never invite you back, you know. So to come back and to see all of those wonderful speakers, I'm the only one that came back, right? That's, that's quite remarkable. So thank you so much. I'm very moved by that. Um, I just want you to notice, by the way, that we're in one of the most beautiful places in North America. You're in Laguna Beach, California. It is a gorgeous day outside. It's 20 degrees in Chicago, where my son is. It's 80 degrees outside. The sun is shining. The seagulls are crying. The waves are lapping. And we're stuck in a room with no windows. <laughs> I, 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 for some reason, Jewish organizations do this. So next year, that's it. Next year, we're meeting at the Newark Airport Marriott, <laughs> right? Because if you're going to be stuck in a room without windows, like why? For God's sakes, you know? I mean, for, what, what's wrong with you Jews? Get outside! Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> How was the lecture? Great. He sent us outside. We frolicked on the beach. I had a wonderful time with my wife. I came home. So, um, I, I'm going to tell. I was watching all of the speakers on the on the on the video, and I'm very intimidated. I'm very humbled to to be among them, and to be invited back. And and so what we're going to do today is I, I'm going to sort of earn my place here by making you do all the work. <laughs> Today's topic is not about you, about me. It's not about Judaism. It's about you. So here here's the the job I need you to start. Let me tell you a story to start with. And, and if I repeat anything I said last time I was here, <clears throat> that's your problem. Because I, I can't remember anything I ever said. So when I was a young rabbi at the, at the synagogue, when I first started um, at VBS, I got a call from a guy in the neighborhood who told me that his father had just died. And he asked me if I would be willing to officiate at his dad's funeral. And the, do you hear this story already? <laughs> Yes, right. You heard that. See? Did I say it last time? So the duck said to the rabbi, uh, <laughs> "No, this is a true story." So that you know, the guy doesn't belong to the shul, but he lives in the neighborhood, and the rabbi feels like I belong to the neighborhood. So I said, "Sure." So I drive up into the Encino Hills to this very lovely home, and I meet with these three young men, um, whose father has now passed away, and we sit at the kitchen table. And you sit, and when, when a rabbi does an intake for a funeral, the first question, simple question, is, tell me about your dad. And there's this long silence, you know, and he's like, well, what do you want to know? <laughs> it's like, what, what was he into? You know, what was important to him? What mattered to him? And there's this long silence, and then the oldest of the three looks at me and says, well, rabbi, dad was really into golf, <laughs> says I. Golf, golf is good, golf is fine, nothing wrong with golf, you know? What were his values? What were the causes that animated his life? What moved him? And now all three of them are right, you know, are, uh, agree. It's golf. <laughs> Whenever he had a free moment, he played golf. He watched golf on television. Golf was what he and mom did on their vacations. And I look around the house, and I discover that the, the house is decorated in early Byron Nelson, you know? <laughs> It, it's, the whole house is sort of forest green, you know, and there's golf trophies and golf clubs and golf books, and you get to know a person by the way they decorate their house, right? So I tried one more time. I said, okay, I, I get golf. Golf was a, Were there any dreams that he had for you and for your families? He said, yeah, he and mom wanted to retire, live on the 14th tee of a golf course. So listen, so we did a golf funeral. You ever done a golf funeral? It's not very hard. I'll tell you why. First of all, 18 is high. 
So you say he played his 18, right? He gave it his all. He finally got the hole in one he always wanted. Please rise for El Male Rachamim, right? It's really not hard. The problem is, the problem is, as I'm doing this funeral, I ask myself two important questions. Number one, is this really all the guy's life? It, was there poetry in his soul? Were there causes that he was committed to? Were there philosophies that he fought for? Were there missions in life that he adopted for himself, but he never succeeded in communicating that to his own children? I mean, Ellie will tell you, the rabbis will know this, that sometimes you'll do a funeral and you'll have a shiva, and I always invite people to tell a story about this, the person you know, and someone will tell a story and the kids never heard. The kindness, the generosity, the goodness, the, the projects that the person... Is this, is this the case? That here was a man who really did have a very well-rounded life, but all that his kids saw was the gulf. Or, which is probably even more tragic, is it possible to reduce an entire human life to gulf? Have we reached a point in the course of our civilization that gulf can really take up an entire life? You know, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard the great Danish depressive philosopher once said that you, you can't devote your whole life to simply what he called the aesthetic, which we would call the pursuit of good times. Because, you know, what happens is, you know, you get bored with after a while. You need something bigger in life. But, you know, Kierkegaard didn't live in 20th, 21st century America, where there's so many nice things to do to fill up your days. Is it possible to reduce a life to a game? And that's what his life became. Either one of these two possibilities breaks my heart. And so I, I went to the synagogue the following Rosh Hashanah, and I stood before my congregation, and I offered them this homework assignment, which I now offer you. And I mean this seriously, and this is the good time to do it, because it's a beautiful place and a, respectful, and a restful time. Take a piece of paper, take a, a pad, sit down, and write a letter. Write the letter to the people who mean the most to you. If you're blessed with children and grandchildren, write it to them. If you've got friends that mean the world to you, write it to them. If they're associates, coworkers, colleagues, people that have been with you through life and they matter, write it to them. Write them a letter. And here's what I want you to put in the letter. What has life taught you? What have you learned from your life? You've all been alive for a while. You have worked and you've succeeded and you've failed and you've struggled and you've suffered and you've celebrated. What has life come to teach you? What did you learn from growing up in the home of your parents growing up? What did you learn from your years in school? What did you learn from your years at work? From your successes and even more important, from your failures. If you've been in relationships, what did you learn from those relationships? Relationships that lasted and relationships that didn't last. What have you, those of you who have been married, what did you learn from marriage? And those of you who have been divorced, what have you learned from that? And those who have children, what did you learn from having children? Raising children. And those of you who have been blessed with grandchildren or beyond, what have you learned from that? And what have you learned from burying loved ones? And what have you learned from the friends that you've gathered? What has life come to teach you? And I want you to do this for three principal reasons. Principal reason number one, you deserve to know. The Sefer Torah, the Torah scroll that we use in a synagogue, that Torah scroll has 5,480 sentences, which means it has 45,000 
words, which means it has 225,000 handwritten letters in Sefer Torah. And you know the tradition is that if any one of those letters is missing, if any one of those letters is erased or defaced or neglected, if any letter in the Torah is missing, the entire Torah is puzzle. You can't use it. You wrap it up, you put the wrap on the outside of the, ra- of the, of the cover, and you have to go get a software to fix it. Even the tiniest yud is missing, whole Torah is puzzle. That is a great example of Jewish obsessive compulsive disease. <laughs> it's true. But there's a message to that. There's a meaning to that. Because the tradition understood that each one of us is a letter in God's message to the world. You were born into the world to convey something, to bring truth. And if any one of us fails to convey their truth, the entire message is indecipherable. The entire revelation is gobbledygook. Every one of you has something to say to the world. You're unique. You're precious. You're the only one in the world who has ever worn your face. Six billion people on the planet, we can tell them all apart because there's only one that looks like this. Thank God. (laughs) But you're the only one who carries your perceptions. You're the only one who has ever seen the world through the eyes you brought into the world. That's, by the way, when you go to a baby naming, that's why we all stand up when they bring the baby in the room. Because when you're in the presence of something that unique, it's precious. You know something about life. You really do. There's no life which is prosaic, no life which is empty, no life which doesn't have a deep truth to it. You just don't know you know what you know. Now you're going to figure it out. And at first you're going to start writing and all the things you write are going to sound like song lyrics from bad songs, right? (laughs) Love is the way, right? right? All you need is love. And then you're going to say, damn, that's true actually, and here's why. And suddenly you're going to discover that you're a very wise person. You know something about life. That's the first reason, so that you'll know. Here's the second reason, so that we'll know. You should all live to be 120. Live in Laguna, it's a good chance you will too, right? You should all, because the Malchamavis can't get down that highway. That's the reason. People live here forever because death can't get in here, you know. And they certainly can't get a reservation. It's true. There's going to come a time. And when that time comes, don't you want your kids, your family, the circle of people who care for you to know the truth that was yours? Don't you want us to be able to have that truth? Now, you're saying to yourself, no, Rabbi, you don't understand. I've been talking about this to my kids since they were little. Yes, that's true, but they're not listening. Why? Because they're 20th century American kids who don't know how to listen. Why? Because between your, 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 your vocalization and their ears is a whole media culture which provides static interference to what you tried to say. Why? Because the intentions we have is not necessarily what gets communicated to our kids. I'll give you a very simple example of this. We write checks for, for charity, for tzedakah. 
Kids don't see us write checks. Number two, they don't even know what writing a check means. And these days, nobody writes checks anymore. You do it with the click of your mouse. So your kid ultimately never sees you give charity. And some of you are enormously charitable people, but your children and grandchildren have never seen you do it. My Bubby used to have a little pushka, little metal boxes on her windowsill. Bubby supported everybody. Bubby supported Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, Zionist, un-Zionist, Jewish, not so Jewish. Everybody got a couple of pennies, Erev Shabbos, from my Bubby. I saw her give stalker. I saw her give charity. Your kids don't see you do it. How do they know what charity is? You see? So if you don't tell them, they're not going to get it. So take the letter, give it to the kids. I'd suggest you have a nice dinner and then give it to the kids. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to put it somewhere so when the time comes, Rabbi Spitz can find it. <laughs> like in your sock drawer, you know, under the drawers, you know, or next to the stocks and the bonds and the big contribution to the shul, you know. That. Seriously. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this for 20 years. And I've had the occasion to read these letters at funeral service. Do you know what comfort this is? Do you know what comfort it is for a family? I had a, a, a particular situation that comes to mind where I gave this talk at a cancer support group. A woman wrote the letter, and a few months later she passed away. A very young woman. Her children said, what a gift to hear her words, to hear her voices. What a gift to know her wisdom. What a gift to hold the legacy of this one. So this is what I want you to do for them. Here's the third reason I want you to do it. If you do this, you will suddenly read religion differently. My thesis is that all the sacred texts of our tradition, Bible, Midrash, Talmud, Halacha, philosophy, mysticism, prayer book, Haggadah, Megillah, all the sacred texts are the accumulated letters of our ancestors. They lived, they worked, they struggled, they suffered, they celebrated, they sang, and they sat down and wrote letters. And then he left them for us as a gift of love. Here's what life taught me. I just want you to know this. And over the course of the centuries, our ancestors accumulated these letters and put them into books, and that's what sacred books are. What makes sacred books sacred in my theology is not that God sat down and wrote them, it's that our ancestors gave them to us as acts of love so that we might be able to find God. Or to put it in a different way, the kid asks me, Rabbi, do you believe God wrote the Torah? I say, absolutely. He says, you really believe that? I said, yes, no question about it. God wrote the Torah. Except God doesn't own a pencil. God doesn't own a word processor. Even a Mac, God doesn't own, you know? How did God write the Torah? Through the souls of sensitive people who struggled with life. We are God's pencils. So your letters are part of a long tradition of sacred wisdom. And by adding your letter to the corpus of sacred wisdom, you add something to the tradition of the Jewish people. You earn your immortality in our community. And today what I'd like to do is I'd like to help you read through some of the words of our ancestors. See, the problem we have is that they wrote these letters, but they wrote them in the idiom of their cultures. 
And their cultures, being ancient cultures, they wrote differently. And that makes these, le these letters, these words, somewhat indecipherable and, and, and hard to understand for contemporary people. So rabbi guys like Ellie and me, we go to school for like these endless, endless years in order to learn how to decode this stuff. But when you read it, this is what I want you to keep in mind. What's the question being asked? The question being asked is, how do I live a life that matters? Life is short and life can be tough. How do I live a life that matters? How do I leave something behind in the world that matters? What wisdom do I carry with me so that my, my life matters? That's the great question. Now that question was asked to me by a particular person. I'll tell you who that person was. I'm sorry, you've heard this story before again. So you just say, oh, this one again, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like going to a concert and the guy plays covers of other people's albums. In my, in my synagogue, I have a day school. And the day school kids, I meet with the day school kids twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. I lead them in Minyan in the morning, first thing, 8.15 in the morning. So Tuesdays, I teach them new prayers. And Thursdays, after we daven, we daven through the service, pray through the service. We play a game called, well, I like to call it She'ilot Uchuvot, questions and answers for the rabbi. They like to call it Stump the Rabbi. <laughs> and the rule is really simple. Ask any question you want about anything. Any question you want about it, because I'm trying to teach these kids that we are not afraid of any question. Any question you want, I'll try to answer. I don't know the answer, I'll confess I don't know the answer, and we'll go figure out the answer together. But ask me any question. And when you offer this, second, third, and fourth graders, you offer this to kids, they ask great questions. Kid raises his hand, Rabbi, if God created everything, who created God? Damn good question. Really good question. So what do you say to that kid? Everything you know in the world has a beginning, right? You have a birthday, your sister has a birthday, right? The car you drove in today to get to school was built one day. Everything, the tree that's in front of the, in front of the building was planted, everything has a beginning. Is there anything in the world that doesn't have a beginning? Anything in the world that, doesn't, that, that is really timeless? Anything in the world, not going to be again. So the kids will think a minute, and then one of the kids will say, yeah, time. Time didn't have a beginning. Because if time had a beginning, you could ask the question, what was five minutes before? Time is in all ways. God is in all ways. Because God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have a birthday. God doesn't have a beginning. God is always was and always is. It's part, God is reality and part of reality. Now, the fancy language for this, for those of you who are keeping score, is the following. If God is eternal, ready? What is the ontological status of eternity? Meaning, if something is eternal, if it doesn't have a beginning, in what sense can you say that it exists in as much as everything that exists had a beginning? Forget that. <laughs> Too hard. God is an always. What else is an always? Look, here's an always. Love is an always. Right? It's not that love was invented one day. It's part of the universe. It's part of what we are. We don't invent it. We discover it. And we tap into it. God is in all ways. Kid says, hmm. Another kid raises his hand and says, Rabbi, I got another question. You told me the Torah is true. That's the truth. I did. I did. So we just read Genesis. Cool. In Genesis, Adam and Eve only had two kids. And they were both boys. How'd the world get full of people? 
to which the fourth graders who have sex education go, <laughs> And I say, well, I'll make it harder for you. Two boys and one offs the other, one kills the other. Now how do you get the world full of people? Yeah, what is it? Great question. What's the kid really asking? You told me the Torah is true, but there are things in the Torah, there's things in religion that don't make sense. So which is it? Do I compromise my sense of the, my, my belief in the truth of the Torah, or do I compromise my common sense in order to hold my religion? So I said to the kid, do you think the guys who wrote the Torah were stupid? He says, no, of course not. They were probably the smartest guys who ever were. So don't you think that problem occurred to them? <laughs> they know how babies come in the world. <laughs> you know? Kid says, right. I said, well, what do you know then? Seems to me that sometimes the Torah on purpose tells us a story that doesn't make sense. Why would it do that? Because it wants to teach you that sometimes the stories of the Torah are true because their facts are true, and sometimes the Torah tells you a story not because the facts are true, but because the truth of the story is true. The lesson of the story is true. For example, what would we say is the lesson of this story? If all humanity has the same mom and dad, what does that make us? Family. Now you have to be careful about how to ask the next question. How are you supposed to treat your family? <laughs> I've done this before. <laughs> You're supposed to treat your family with responsibility and care. Everybody in the world, same family? People who don't look like us, people who don't pray like us, people who don't eat like us, people who walk the world differently, they're part of my family? Yes. And therefore, that story is not about what really happened. That story is about how you're supposed to happen now. You're supposed to see every human being you meet in the world as your brother or sister, even the person sitting next to you. Kids say, gee, that's, that's, that's true. Another kid raised her hand. This is a sad one. Fourth grade girl says, mom was just diagnosed with breast cancer. <coughs> and we're scared. If I pray really hard to God, will she get better? Tough, tough question. It took me a long time to figure out how to talk to that kid. She's, you know, seven, eight years old. Kids shouldn't know from these things. But <coughs> they know, because moms get breast cancer. So I said to the kid, you know, I had cancer. I still have cancer, but I'm okay, I'm healthy. Still go see doctors an awful lot. You know what I discovered when I had cancer? I discovered that the world is full of angels. Angels aren't guys with wings and harps and halos and robes. Angels are real ordinary people who do extraordinary acts of niceness, of kindness, of goodness without asking anything in return. And I, it took me getting sick to learn that there are angels everywhere. Angels who took care of me, the nurses, the doctors, the scientists who made my medicine, the people in the neighborhood who took care of my wife and my kids. Angels, some of you are my angels. Let's pray to God that God sends angels to your mother and that they will take care of her and that, and that those angels will give her strength, shall we? And she said, is God gonna hear that prayer? I said, I promise you, God's gonna hear that prayer. Those are the kind of questions kids ask when you give them a chance. Then there's one more kid. He shows up every year wearing a different face. 
but he always shows up. Different kid, different kid. But he shows, he always shows up. Usually he's the older kid, the fourth grade boys. Fourth grade boys who are just, you know, having a really hard time with life, you know. And so this, the, the, the kid stands up, he's grinning, he's, he's laughing, he's got me, he's about to trap me. And he says, okay, Rabbi, here's my question. You're going to answer any question, right? I say, you bet. He says, here's my question. What's the meaning of life? <laughs> and all of his fourth grade buddies crack up. What's the meaning of life? Now, I have to tell you that the first dozen times this happened, I got angry and I threatened to revoke his bris. I, I, <laughs> or redo it, actually. It's true. But it took me a time to really stop and see what, what, what happened there. The question, what's the meaning of life, to that kid is hysterically funny. It's a joke. Even if you ask your rabbi, even if you ask your rabbi in the synagogue, it's a joke. Is it a joke? Now, it's true that I spend my life meeting people in extremes. It's not a joke to me. When you visit somebody in the waiting room at the oncology clinic, it's not a joke. When you're with a family in the mortuary, it's not a joke. When you're downtown at the family court, it's not a joke. When people come to see me in my study because their lives are falling apart, it's not a joke. Who told that kid that that, life, that that question is a joke? Who taught that kid that even if you ask your rabbi, especially if you ask your rabbi, in synagogue, it's a joke. And now I'm looking at the kid, and now I'm getting a sense of who he is. I'll tell you who did. We did. In two different ways. The first thing is, we don't talk that way about Jewish life. We like to tell people how to do Jewish. We don't like to tell people why. And I'll prove it to you. Four sons sit at the Seder table. The kid who says, what are the laws and traditions and customs of the Passover? That one is the? The Chacham, the wise child. The kid who says, Mazel Achem, what are you doing this for? My brother Larry. Right? <laughs> really is wicked. He, that kid, that kid, no, nah, I'm kidding, Larry. <laughs> he listens to iTunes. I love you, Larry. I love you. It's going to cost me a lawsuit. Grendel, could you blank out that last? I'll pay you, man. I'll pay whatever it costs. Man. <laughs> Sorry. Man. The kid who says, Mazelachem, what does this mean to you? That kid is castigated as, as the Rasha, as the Rasha. Because he says lachem, but lachem, it's the the the, the midrash says it's lachem. But if you look at the wise son's child, he says etchem. So it's not that. It's because we don't like that. That question's uncomfortable. But what happens when you call a kid a rasha? You say you're a wicked child. You know what happens? I'll tell you what happens. The fourth kid, she'eno yodei The fourth kid who doesn't ask. You ever, ever bother anybody? What Jewish kid doesn't know how to ask a question? <laughs> right? Everybody in my Seder knows how to say, when are we going to eat? You know? That's a question. What is this? She'eno yodea lisho. She'eno yodea lisho doesn't know how to ask a question, the fourth kid. It's not because he's dumb or inarticulate or illiterate. It's because he's angry. The silent child was yesterday's wicked child. 
who learned that if you raise a question at this table, they're going to shut you up. So sit quietly. At least he came to the Seder, that's true. But he sits at the end of the table and he doesn't ask because he's learned that there are certain questions that we just don't like to deal with. So he doesn't ask. And that's really a shame because there is a whole generation of kids like that now. They just did this study, the Pew Report, did you read it? 38% of Jews under the age of 35, when asked, what is your current religion, wrote none. Not orthodox, not conservative, not reform, not reconstructionist, not renewal, not Zionist, not anti-Zionist, not Christian, not Buddhist, not, none. Call them non-Jews. <laughs> People that have given up, because why? And I'll tell you why. Because they came with a serious question about how do I find meaning in my life, and instead of answering the question, we told them to shut up. And, we, and, and, it's, and I know the reason why. It's not our fault. The reason's very simple. Just survived the most traumatic, cataclysmic century in all of Jewish history. It's really hard to answer questions. I'll tell you why. The greatest act of destruction in all of Jewish history was the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in the year 70. The Holocaust exceeds it. Greatest act of redemption, of saving in all of Jewish history is the creation, was the crossing of the Red Sea, save the Yitziat Mitzrayim coming out of Egypt. Recreation of the state of Israel matches it. Problem is, Yitziat Mitzrayim, Exodus from Egypt, Chorban Abayit, destruction of the temple, happened 1,500 years apart. Holocaust and state of Israel happened in the same decade. How can a generation undergo such cataclysm and, and have anything to say at all except to stand in silence? I grew up in a wonderful synagogue, wonderful, wonderful, traditional, warm, loving, wise, conservative synagogue in the West San Fernando Valley with a rabbi who I dearly love, who is a pious and a sweet man and never, ever, ever talked about God. He talked about Israel, he talked about intermarriage, he talked about family life, he talked about politics, he talked about books, he talked about movies, he never talked about God, he never talked about why we pray, he never talked about why we perform mitzvot. The deep religious question, I grew into teenage, I became very angry. How come you didn't, I went to him once, I went to him, I said, how come you didn't talk about this stuff? The hell's wrong with you? You're a rabbi, talk about God, how come you don't talk about God? And he looked at me and there were tears in his eyes and he said, because I couldn't. Because after the Holocaust, what was I supposed to say about God? After the creation of the state of Israel, what do you say about Israel, about, about history? I talked about what I could talk about. The problem is, the problem is that the question has come back now in a big way. And if we haven't an answer, you end up with the Pew Report, 38% of young Jews who simply say, I have no religion. Because religion, at its very minimum, is supposed to answer that question. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Now, incidentally, so you don't get too guilty, American civilization doesn't do any better. This is not a matter of, of assimilation, because American civilization is equally mute when it comes to that question. America gives us more power, more leisure, more opportunity, more freedom, more freedom of choices than any civilization in human history. You can go more places, think more thoughts, experience more things. You have more opportunities and more freedoms of choice 
than any humans have ever lived on the planet. Only one problem. American civilization gives us not a clue how to make those choices. What choices to make? What matters? Right? We have the mall. The mall is the great American iconic symbol. Have whatever you want. <laughs> but, but what do I want? Do I really want what I want? Do I need what I want? Is what I want good for me? Have at it. So what happens is, because Americans don't have any way of making that decision, even though they have unlimited choices, they live with a sort of hole in the soul. And that's uncomfortable, because sometimes you gotta fill these hours. So what do we do? We go for distractions. I, it once occurred to me, the strange thing, I live in LA, right? So you know, Detroit used to make cars, and Seattle makes software, and you know, New York, they make money, you know, and Houston, they make oil. What do they make in L.A.? Fantasy. Distraction. We are the world capital of distraction. Why are we so invested in distraction? Because you're trying to figure out what to do with all these open hours and nothing, to, no way to fill them up. We fill them up with distraction. You know this. You know what? I'll give you just a silly, silly story. When, several years ago, we had a television set. I bought it from one of my graduate students when he went to Israel. A 25-inch color TV with rabbit ear antennas, and it died. All of a show. <laughs> so the kid said, Abba, you've got to go get something nice. You, know, you buy a new TV every 25 years, get something nice. So off to Best Buy we go, right? And I said, I don't know anything about buying a TV. It's like, don't worry, the kids say, we know. <laughs> yes, they do. 34-inch... Sony HD TV Trinitron Gayface. Three days later, the three largest human beings I've ever seen in my life carry a box into my house. The box is as big as my first apartment, right? And they put this thing down on the desk and they open it up and it's like, it has a remote control with more buttons. You can launch a moon rocket from this thing. It's unbelievable. And then my son says, Abba, you know, rabbit ear antennas don't go with us. You have to get, you know, cable. So Dimitri comes, lovely young Jewish fellow from Leningrad. Oh, Rabbi, you're going to love this, you know. You are giving you the top tier package. You, know? you have enough channels, keep you busy a while. So he gives me another remote control with 50 buttons. Do you know how many channels are on my TV? How many channels on your TV? How many? I grew up in LA. I grew up in LA, we had 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. That was it. Then came the Lord God and gave us UHF. We had Alastair Cook from London, Masterpiece Theater, and Bullfights from Tijuana. And on our TV, they kept getting crossed. So you had Alastair getting gored by bulls. It was horrible, right? Julia Childs fighting off some Toro, you know? And then cooking it, you know? My TVs, that was it. If you had 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, 13, 28, and 34, and if that was it, you went outside to play. No, 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 no. How many channels on your television? How many? I'll tell you how many. I, I counted. Enough that you can spend a whole evening not actually watching anything, just flipping through the channels. I mean, if I watch Gilligan's Island in Norwegian, you know? <laughs> 
naked bridge. You know, I just people, I gave face to stuff on this TV. I can't believe what's on this. Unbelievable. This is this there's a golf station. Did you know this? Right? The guy at Berries. It's a food network, you know? A whole network about food. I mean it's unbelievable. If you watch this? Yes. This, now they're putting there's a wrestling network on now, Verface. Why? Why did we need that? And by the way, that's all you said. Then there's pay-per-view. You can get movies, HBO, right? And then you get, if you don't like the TV, you go to a computer. And how many websites are there? <laughs> right, that's the right answer, a lot. <laughs> and then by the way, if, if you leave the house, you can go to the movies. When I was a kid, the movie had a movie. <laughs> Maybe if you were lucky, two movies. How many movies in your local theater? 20, 30, 40, right? Right? And then their theme park. I was born the same year Mickey was born. I was born the year that Disneyland opened. Hi! You know. <laughs> how many, how many, first of all, Disney, you know what they did to, you live here, so you know. What they did to Disney is build a second Disneyland in the parking lot of the first Disneyland. It's called California Adventure. Did you know that? So some relatives from back east come, so I drove them down there to go there. You know, and after you come down the four or five and then the five, you get to the gate and this sweet little Orange County girl, what? what? She works there. You work there? Yeah. One of your employees, a sweetheart, sweet girl, says, would you like to visit the California Adventure? And I said, honey, I just spent two and a half hours on the 405. <laughs> I've had all the California Adventure I can stomach, <laughs> you know. You get me to Fantasyland now. <laughs> okay. There's at least 10 of these around, right? Uh -huh. 10 parks yeah. where you can... Why do we need so much? Because if you have unlimited freedom, but no notion of what to do with it, you need to escape from that freedom. You need to kill time. And I'm going to suggest to you that the kid's question, what's the meaning of life, is born of both of these of a religious tradition that failed to do what it was supposed to do, and of an American tradition that doesn't have anything to say to the question. Now here's the real tragedy. We have something to say. The Jewish tradition has an exquisite idea of what life is for. We just have forgotten how to articulate that. And that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to learn how to articulate that. So we're going to do, we have no time left, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a look at some sources, okay? The Bible is a drama in three acts. The Bible is a drama in three acts. When we open the Bible, we're introduced to the Bible's main character. It's a character called God. Forget everything you know about God, because the God that of the Bible is not anything like the God that you think about in our culture. The God of the Bible, the one thing you know about that God, number one, is that he creates stuff. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. God is a creator. And he creates, the first thing he does is create light, and he separates the light from the darkness, and he calls the light day, and he calls the night night. And then one more thing. He sees it's good. So this is a God who creates and enjoys what he creates. Look, ooh, nice. This is a God who enjoys his creation. And then he creates land, and that's good. Then he creates trees and bushes and berries, 
And that's good. And then he creates the sun and the moon so that there'll be light in the world, and that's good. And then he creates birds and bugs and fish, and that's good. And then he creates animals, and that's good. And then he has one more need at the end of the sixth day, late Friday afternoon. He wants one more thing, somebody to share this with. A creature who will be different from all other creatures, who will be able to share creation to share creation and appreciate it with him. And this is God's dream. I have this great world. Come and share it. So he creates the human being. Your first task in life is to, is to share creation with God. And he takes the human being, right? And it's a wonderful thing. So the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the earth, and he blew into his nostrils, and man became a living being. Right? Then the Lord God planted a garden in the east. And there he placed the man whom he formed. And from the garden, from the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing for the sight and for food, the tree of life in the middle of the garden, tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now, he creates a garden. One of the interesting things about creation is that the theme that runs through the creation narrative is oneness. Number one, how does God create stuff? What does he do? He doesn't actually make it. He simply speaks it, right? The phrase, yehi or, let there be light. By the way, can you do that? Can you speak something into, a, into, into existence? You come home late from work, and you're really tired, and you stare into the microwave, and you say, let there be dinner. <laughs> Gurnish, nothing, right? I was once really tired. I was lying on the couch. I said to my youngest son, Rafi, Go over there, give me the remote control. He said, no. I said, Rafi, get me the remote control. He said, no. I said, Rafi, if I could have reached the remote control a few years ago, you wouldn't be here now. Give me the damn remote control. <laughs> you, can't get, you can't speak physical things into being. What were you going to say? Well, there's two creation stories. What you're talking about is true. Out of nothing, yeah. it creates yeah. The, yeah. in the first one. Right. The second one... First of all, he doesn't do it to share. And the yeah. second one, he says, he needed someone to till the land. Now we're getting to that. You're, you're, you're one, one syllable ahead of me. But he doesn't create in here. He, in the second creation story, he creates out of things. Yeah, well, yes and no. We'll get, wait a second. Just, we'll, we'll get right to you. We'll get to, I'm not going to argue with you. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Jews are right. You're right. <laughs> what are you, what, what, by the way, what, is it, what, what do you call it when you pretend you can create using your words? Magic. And what are the magic words? Abracadabra. So on my magic blackboard here, I'm going to write the phrase abracadabra in Hebrew. Aleph, bet, resh, aleph, avara, kaf, dalet, bet, resh, aleph, kidabira. Translation, I will create it as I say it. Abracadabra is a Hebrew or actually Aramaic incantation, meaning I have God's power to create when I say things. Abara kidabara is a Hebrew phrase. Now, nothing else I say you remember. That you'll remember. <laughs> but the point is that when you breathe creation into the world, when God creates, it's all, it's, it's God is sort of breathing being into the world. Okay? So there's a sort of creates connection between God and the creation that God makes. Second, how about between God and people? In the first story, how does God create people? in God's image. In the second story, God breathed life into the man. 
Okay? In the first story, man and woman are created together. In the second story, man is created out of the dust of the earth. There's a oneness here. A oneness between God and his creation, between man and woman, between man and God, okay? and there's ultimately the oneness between man and nature because we're made out of the same stuff. And then he takes the man and he creates a garden. Isn't that a wonderful metaphor? Isn't it interesting he didn't create a palace? Or a shopping center? <laughs> or a hotel? What does it mean to create? What's a garden? What, what's a garden? Think about what a garden is. It's such an interesting metaphor. What's a garden? Something that sustains you with its fruit. Yeah, it's a garden sustains you, and you sustain it. It is a meeting place between nature and human artifice. And if it's done well, everything in the garden has its place and is perfect and it's right. And notice what's wonderful here is that it's not just that it's a fruitful garden full of food, it's a garden that's also beautiful. It's a nice, so God has a sense of aesthetics. God as decorator, okay? And he puts the man in the garden and here's the first statement of human purpose. What does it say? Here's what, what, what you said a moment ago. Your name is? Al. 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 That's what Al just said a moment ago. I'm catching up to you. The Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden. Now that would have been enough. That would have been the end of the sentence. He put him in Eden. Done. Uh, no, 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 no. Two words. Two words. Le'avda u le'shamra. Le'avda, la'avod. What is avodat? To work. U le'shamra, lishmor. To guard it. Till it and tend it, says the translator. To work it and to guard it. To work it and to protect it. You were put into the world for a singular purpose. What was your purpose? To work and, and protect God's world. That's the purpose of your being in the world. It's an interesting image. You know, God, he's entering, entering the garden. God hands him a rake and a box of trash bags. <laughs> Garbage day is Thursday. Make sure it's put out on the curb. You know? Welcome to paradise. <laughs> Right? Your job is to till it and tend it. By the way, so, so I, I was teaching kids, so I, you just, I'm sure you did this too. The, the kids asked me this question on, on Thursday morning. Is there a bracha for recycling? <laughs> I said, first of all, is recycling a mitzvah? Kid says, yes. I said, how do you know? He said, because we're told lishmor, to, go, to guard the world. Recycling is part of guarding the world. I said, that's the answer. So we created a bracha for, you're on the law committee, put this down, ready? <laughs> Number one, recycling is a mitzvah and not recycling is, is an avera, is a sin, right? So putting the Coke can in the regular trash is pasnish, right, it's not done. And the bracha is, Baruch Tadunai Eloheinu Melech Asher Kitshan Mitzvotah Betzivanu Lishmor Et Hagan. Lishamra Olavda, Lishmora Tagan, right? To guard the world, to guard God's garden, okay? okay put me in a footnote. <laughs> now what happens? What happens? I'm gonna move the story very quickly because I know you wanna eat lunch before three o'clock, right? What happens? He puts the man in the garden, okay? And he gives him woman, it's another story. And, 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 and he says to him, here's their, eat anything you want. Just don't touch the magic tree in the middle. And so the very first thing that the woman does is cuts the tree in the middle. Why? That's what they do. Yes. Your kids? Your kids? Yes, you're right. Yes. That's why. 
Because, why? Because there's something different about human beings than any other animal. If God had told any other animal in the garden, don't touch the tree, what would that animal have done? Not touch the tree. No animal would have touched the tree because animals are programmed not to do what they're out to do, right? Here's the one difference between you and a dog. Well, there's a couple, but I was talking to Ari. Uh, no dog in the hundred million years of doggies, no dog ever woke up in the morning and said meow. Not one. Not one dog ever woke up in the morning and said, today I am a porpoise or a platypus or a porcupine. Not one, never, ever, ever. Dogs wake up in the morning and they are dogs. You, however, wake up in the morning and say, who am I today? You are the only self-defining, self-creating creature in the world. Your identity is an open question. Unlike your dog, now you can teach an old dog new tricks, but you can't teach a dog to be anything but a dog. But a human being can completely change their character through a decision of the heart of the soul. You can do this. You can decide who I'm going to be. You can decide how I'm going to be. You can decide what I'm going to be. You are the only self-creating creature. When you put a self-creating creature in a garden and you say, don't touch that tree, the first thing that self-creating creature is going to do is touch the tree. It's an assertion of freedom. I am not going to be who you make me to be. I am going to be who I choose to be. And if it's an act of disobedience, anybody here ever raised teenagers? <laughs> it's an act of rebellion. It's part of the process of determining who and what I am. It's painful, but it's the process. So God is disappointed, takes the man out, and puts him outside the garden. And what happens is, outside the garden, man has to live a life individuated. Because if you want to be self-creating, that's fine. But you can no longer be bound to the garden and bound to each other. And now the world is filled with individuation. We are individuals. What happens when people get extremely individuated? They bump into each other. And they start hurting each other. And the world gets filled with violence. And God looks down at the world filled with violence, 10 generations of violence, and God says, oh, terrible. Anybody here bake? I like to bake. You bake? You ever make a mistake? Yeah. Like a really bad mistake, like sugar for salt. You never do that one. <laughs> salt for sugar. For leave the baking powder out. You get brownies that are this thin and weigh 100 pounds, you know. So what do you do? What do you do? Make sure no one's looking and you throw them out, but you throw them deep in the trash can so no one knows you did it. And then you start over again, right? Or you go to the store and you buy something, right? Right? God says that. So look at this world. It's horrible. It's not the world I wanted. I wanted a world of oneness. I ended up with a world of violence. Screw it. Get rid of it. And just as he's about to destroy it all, his eye catches one fellow. He has potential. God says, I'll tell you what. I'll save him. He's a good one. I couldn't create a good man. I couldn't create a man to share my dream of a world of oneness. Maybe I can choose one. So he chooses Noah. Has him build the ark, save a bunch of animals, floats them in the world, the world is cleansed, start over again. What's the first thing Noah does when he comes out of the ark? Plants a vineyard and gets ripped, roaring drunk. <laughs> because he ain't going to do it either. 
And this, in the world, once again, descends into violence, into corruption. So now God says, look, act one, I tried to create a good man. Didn't work. Act two, I tried to choose a good man. Didn't work. Act three, I can't destroy the world. I promised I wouldn't. I couldn't create one. I couldn't choose one. Maybe I can teach one. Maybe I can teach a human being to share my dream of a world of oneness. I'll pick somebody. I'll pick somebody by random. Now, the Midrash in the Talmud has this long story about why Abraham. But I think the Bible is very clear. It was random. It was Abraham, A.B., first guy in line. <laughs> <laughs> if, his, if his name was Zachary, he never would have been our ancestor. You know? He says, you. The guy says, who, me? He says, yeah, you. 12th chapter of Genesis. Leave home. What? Yes, I need you to start over again. Go forth from your native land, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those that curse you, and blessed in you, shall be in you, shall be all the families of the earth. Says to the guy, here's what's interesting. The Bible knows you know literature. And the Bible knows that you read mythology. And the Bible knows that you know that this story happens in every world mythology. Every single one. Thank you, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> in every world mythology, a god comes to a hero. In, in, in Greece, it's Perseus and Achilles. The Navajos have this story. The Polynesians have this story. The Aborigines in Australia have this, New Guinea have this story. Every Near Eastern culture has this story. The God comes to the hero and says, I need you to do something for me. I will make of you a great nation. Oh, all right, that's good. And I will bless you. That's even better. And I will make your name great. In only one world mythology is the next line pleasant. Be a blessing. Your job is not to grow powerful and rich and, and, and rule the world. Your job is not to conquer and subdue. That's what all the other mythologies offer. This mythology says, here's what you do for me. Hey, be a blessing. Now, the question is, what does he mean by that? So he gives you the Rashi in the next sentence, right? I'll bless those who bless you. That's nice. I'll curse those who curse you. That's even better. I want that on a bumper sticker, by the way. <laughs> That'd be great. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What's the job description of this people? God needs somebody to carry blessing into the world. God needs a vessel of divine blessing into the world. That's going to be your task. And just as a personal question, it's an interesting object, it's an interesting notion of what one's purpose in life is. Think of somebody in your life that you would say, that person is my blessing. Anybody ever have anybody, don't, don't tell us, just think about it. Yes, all right, yes, I remember. That person is my blessing, or is my blessing. Imagine, imagine aspiring to be that. You walk the world in such a way that someone somewhere says, he's my blessing. Whenever they mention your name, he's my blessing. That's your job description. Except God has bigger horizons. Not just for one. I want this, this, this guy and his family, I want them to be the vessel of divine blessing in the world. Now, then what happens is, now the Bible has an interesting idea. Why does God need him? 
God needs somebody? I thought God is omnipotent. Yes, except for one task. Because he's dealing with a world of self-creating creatures, he needs one of them to take up the task of being a blessing. Oh yeah? How far are you willing to go with that idea? How far are you willing to go with that idea? And now the Bible's going to have some fun. I hope you're in the mood for some <laughs> biblical fun. So the Bible presents the following scenario. Okay, Three angels show up on Abraham's doorstep right after his circumcision. Ouch. <laughs> One of them says, Mazel Tov, you're going to be a daddy. And your, mommy, and your wife's going to be a mommy. He says, I'm 100, she's 90, you're out of your mind. God said, did I not create Viagra? <laughs> I can split seas. I can raise the dead. <laughs> now, we got, now we have two more angels left. The two angels, chapter 18, ready? The, the men set out from there and looked down towards Sodom. He's in the hills. Abraham's up in the hills. And they're looking down into the rift. And there's this big city of Sodom. Abraham walking with them. Verse 17. Now the Lord had said. To whom? To whom is God talking now? The angels. No, the angels. No. To himself. Right. This is God ruminating. Listen to God's rumination. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Stop a second. What is the ostensible answer to that question? Of course you should. You're God. <laughs> what fun is it to be God if you've got to explain yourself to people, right? Me, I'm Mary, right? My wife is expecting me 12 o'clock at lunch. If I'm 12.01, I'm getting called, right? That's called marriage. Happy marriage, by the way. Right? I'm accountable to somebody. Is God, does God have a wife? Does God have a wife? No, God is not accountable to anybody. That's why the Pope doesn't have a wife. How could you be infallible and have a wife? <laughs> Imagine the Pope had a wife. All right, Mr. Infallible, where are your car keys? You know? <laughs> Mr. Infallible, you left the damn toilet seat up. <laughs> it's a damn good thing the Pope doesn't have a wife. It would, it would, it would, on the other hand, maybe it would be, never mind. I'm, I'm trying to rain, I'm trying to fix our religion. I'm not gonna try to fix that. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? The ostensible answer is, of course you should. You don't have to give him an answer. But watch. Look at the next line. Since Abraham is to become a great and populous nation, the nations of the earth are blessed themselves by him. Remember that language? For I have singled him out that he may instruct his children as prosperity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. What is the way of the Lord? Justice and righteousness. He is going to be the vessel of justice and righteousness in the world. He has to be able to explain what God does. He now becomes God's partner. He, if he's going to bring justice and righteousness, he has to know why God destroys cities. In other words, this man now has a claim on God. Having taken a partner, God is now accountable to his partner. So let's see how that goes. Now the Bible is really going to have some fun. Then the Lord said, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. I'll go see what's going on. The men went out, and Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Verse 23. Everybody see it? Abraham came forward. The Hebrew is Vayigash Avraham. It means he stepped up. If, we, if, the base, if the Bible knew baseball, we'd say he stepped up to the plate. He enters the encounter. Vayigash Avraham. And he says, Will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? 
What if there be 50 innocent in the city? Will you then wipe out the place and not forgive it for the sake of the 50 innocent? Far be it from you. Now, far be it from you, I'll, I'll translate better. To do such a thing, bring death upon the innocent and guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice. Far be it from you is the bad translation. The Hebrew is lecha. Translation. Say it again. Shame on you. Anyone here have a Yiddish speaking grandmother? Very good. Ah, very good. Exactly. So mom and dad used to go, my mom and dad used to travel and Bubby used to stay with us. And as soon as my parents would drive out the street, my brothers and I would start beating the stuffing out of each other. And she'd catch me beating up my little brother. And Bubby would come in, four foot ten, <laughs> right, gray hair, little Lithuanian lady. And she would look at me, and she would shake her head, and she would give me the look. <laughs> Cultivated over 300 generations of Bubbies. A look of utter disgust, of disappointment. And she would say, Och, a schande von a herpe von a schande. Translation, I'm so ashamed of you. And then she would, the, the, the coup de gras was the one syllable that will crush any Jewish boy's heart. She'd say, Fe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, Bubby, take a stick and beat me. Just don't give me fe. <laughs> That's what Abraham says to God. Shame, chalilach, I mean, shame on you. Shame on you to do such a thing. To murder the innocent and the guilty alike. And then here's the line. So that there is no moral differentiation in your universe. So that right and wrong are blurred. So there is no good and evil, no right and wrong, no innocent and guilty. Is that the world you wanted? Chalilelecha. Shall not the judge of all the earth stand for justice? Now, the next line of the Bible should be very simple. Anyone ever see a little short film? You can see it online. Just look it up this afternoon. It's called Bambi versus Godzilla. I'll just, just get yeah, this little pastoral scene of da, 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 this little doe frolicking, and all of a sudden she this giant foot comes. That's it. That's the whole movie. Okay? If I were God, would, if you were God, would you put up with this? Would you put up with it? God should say, screw this. No. God says the most remarkable thing in the whole Bible. God says, okay. You're right. God says, okay, fine. Find me 50 people. I'll save the city. Why does God say that? Think about what that means. God changes God's mind. Abraham changes God's mind because God has a sense of right and wrong that's even stronger than God. There's something in the world more powerful than God. What is it? Justice. And that's what you are here to represent. That's what you're in the world to represent. And even if you have to go up against a power as mighty and awesome and overwhelming as God, your job in the world is fight for justice. Fight for justice. Yes, please. Was it perhaps to teach Abraham? Yes, that's a great that, point. Yes, that, to make Abraham realize. Yes, yes that's that a beautiful is. way to put it. That this was a setup. 
a test. It's one of these things, sometimes you go through life and life teaches you something. Right, exactly right. Now what does Abraham know? I'm needed. My job is to stand for justice in the world. I'm needed. Right now, the Bible's going to have some fun with this. Because it's not enough just to say that, right? So now the Bible's, now you think I have a funny sense of humor. Listen to this. Right. Abraham says, listen, who am I? I'm just a schlepper. But what if five of the 40, what if the five of the 50 are missing? Would you give me for 45? God says 45. Everyone says 40, 40. Do I hear 40? Do I hear 40, 40, 40? Do I hear 30? 30? Do I hear 30? Do I hear 20? 10 sold to the God of the universe. It's an absurd story. Why does he put up with this? Because now he has a man who is willing to risk everything to stand for justice. That is the self-description of the Jewish people. We wrote this story. We wrote this story. This is our job description. This is our self-description. This is what we're meant to be in the world, you see? This is what we're meant to be in the world. Now take a few more minutes, because then I, I don't want to eat. The question now is, how do you take it from one man's experience and share it with an entire people? Facebook. Facebook is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is a livelier crowd than they look, you know? A livelier crowd than they appear, yeah. Yeah, in the, in, the, in, the, in the event that Facebook might not be available, uh, <laughs> God's going to take us to a place in the world which is the diametric opposite of Eden. Eden was a place of oneness, peace, serenity, and life, where everything was provided for the sake of life. There's a place in the world which is its opposite. It's called Egypt. Egypt is drawn as the opposite of Eden. And the reason you gotta go to Egypt, the reason you have to taste the bitterness of slavery is because that's going to teach the entire people what's at stake in the struggle for justice and goodness in the world. And so the entire people goes to Egypt and we taste the bitterness of slavery. Remember, in Eden, Every human being, every element of Eden is intentional. That's what makes it a garden. And the human being created in God's image who bears God's breath is precious. And what happens to us in Egypt? We become slaves. What is a slave? Now you have some good movies to tell you, right? What is a slave? A slave is, not, see, property is right, but it's worse than property because it's, it's dispensable property. It's an expendable person. Exactly. Invisible. See the movie The Help about the maids, right? Or the butler? And in all those cases, what are those people? They're invisible. Invisible people. People whose, whose souls, whose suffering, whose needs, whose feelings. Remember that scene in The Butler where he's serving the president and the president's talking about vetoing the bill about South Africa? You know, and Reagan's sitting there, and he's, he's going to veto the South Africa apartheid thing. And it's just, and, and we're seeing this black man stand there. And, and you, know, you know what he's feeling, but he's invisible to the white people. <clears throat> Cultures turn people invisible. People who are not, who are not important, who are, who are expendable, who are disposable. You know what that's like because you were a slave in Egypt. And coming out of Egypt, we then learn a code of law. 
And what does that code of law teach you? In order to be Abraham's descendant and carry divine blessing in the world, you must construct a society that renders no person invisible. Look at the law. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. When you see the stranger, what do you see? You see yourself reflected in him. You will not ill-treat a widow or an orphan, the helpless, those who have no redress against your cruelty. Okay? Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you'll labor and do all your work. The seventh day is Shabbos. The Lord your God, you will not work. Who? You, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your ox, your ass, any of your cattle, or the stranger in your settlement so that your slaves may rest as you do. Remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Don't turn a page yet. What happens Shabbos? What happens on Shabbat? The social hierarchy collapses. And there's no such thing anymore as the owner and the slave. They become equal. You can't, according to the Gemara, turning to the Talmud, you can't say to your slave on Shabbos, get me a soda from the fridge. How, how does the Shabbos go into this? That's a great question. And the answer is? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's just, it's, it's a worse aberration. Because as you saw here, it says very clearly, you're not to have a servant on the Shabbat. He is your equal on that day. You can't say, get me a beer from the fridge. Or else he can say it to you. One day a week, we returned to Eden. One day a week, we returned to Eden. So we can taste the sweetness of equality and the sweetness of dignity, and the sweetness of oneness, and we don't give up the fight to move the world from Egypt to Eden. Let me give you a hint. The Bible is a road story. In all of human literature, the road, the highway, is the most popular metaphor, right? Homer, Achilles, and Odysseus is a road story. Chaucer is a road story. Right? Pil Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress is a road story. Wizard of Oz is a road story. Lord of the Rings is a road story. They're all road stories. Why? Because the road denotes progress or regress. The Torah is a road, the greatest road story ever written. And you are where in the world? Halfway between Egypt and Eden. And your job in life is to move the world a step toward Eden and a step away from Egypt. And once a week, just to give you the strength to do it, I'm gonna let you go have a furlough back in Eden and taste its sweetness so that the other six days of the world, week, you'll know why you're working so damn hard. Okay, look at the next one. You shall not subvert the, and now I'm on page two. You shall not subvert the rights of strangers, the fatherless, you shall not take a widow's garment in pawn. Oh, that's a cute one. There's a little detail thrown in there. Just a little detail. There's a whole movie in that. You will not Take a widow's garment in pawn. Tell me the story. Tell me, give me the narrative. Tell me the story. Who is she? Who is she? Come on. Widow, no Who is she? Who widow, is she? No, no, no means of support. What was she before? Mary. To a rich guy. And where did she live? In Newport Beach. And what did she own? Nice things, art, jewels, nice cars, 
And she had children, and where did they go to school? Yeah, yeah, no. right. And then what happened? Bernie Madoff. He, he, either Bernie Madoff or he got sick, and all the money went into the treatments, or the money wasn't there to begin with. And she finds herself alone now with the kids, and she has to support them. So what does she start doing in order to support them? She sells the jewels, she sells the art, she sells the cars, eventually she sells the house. She sells everything, and when the children still cry that they're hungry, eventually she decides she has to sell herself. What does Torah say? That is an outrage to God. Don't take the widow's garment. Don't take the shirt off her back. Don't let a human being fall to that level of humiliation, degradation, and invisibility. Don't create a society where that can ever happen. Now you're going to start to ask yourself some questions, and we're not going to get political here. But what kind of a society would one have to create in order to prevent that from ever happening? What would government role be? What would society's role be? What would church synagogue's role be? How do you create the society so that nobody falls to that level of disintegration? So now the Torah is going to give you a hint. Ready? When you reap the harvest in your field and overlook a sheaf of the field, do not turn back and get it. It will go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow in order that God may bless you. When you beat down the fruit of the olive trees, don't go over it again. To the fatherless, the widow, and the orphan, when you gather the grapes, don't pick it again. It goes to the father, the, the, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Always remember that you tasted bitterness and slavery in Egypt. Therefore, do I enjoin you to observe the commandment. What's the law? I know you want to finish, but we're gonna, I'm going to get them hungry for lunch. What's the law? Give me the law. Just someone give me the law. You have an orchard, a field, a vineyard. It yeah. comes harvest time. It comes harvest time. What can you do? You go through it once. Once. You go through it once. What about the stuff that wasn't ripe on that day? What about the stuff that couldn't be picked on that day? What about the stuff that your harvester missed that day? What about that stuff? You must leave it. To whom does it belong? This is not charity. This is property law. This is not you're being a nice guy. It's not that you're getting a nice It does not belong to you. So I have three questions to ask you really quickly. Ready? Question number one. Question number one. Farmer says to you, now let me get this hard straight. This here's my field. It is my field. My daddy's field. It was his daddy's field. I worked this field. I, I plowed the field. I cultivated the field. I, I used to live in Texas. so I, <laughs> I irrigated the field. I planted it. I, and, and now harvest time comes, and you all telling me that I can do what? Say that again, son. What, what, what did I can do? I can only go over it how many times? What, what, what do you mean once? It's mine. You all a bunch of Jew communists, son. <laughs> I knew it. A bunch of communists. If you're, if a you're bunch of... If you're on top of that accent, 
and you're probably also a Bible bump. You're damn right I believe in the Bible. And he's okay with giving. The Bible said, no, sir. charity I will give. Out of goodness of my heart, I'll give charity. I swear to God, I'll give charity. I'll tell you what, son. I'll tell you what. You make me hard work. I'll show you what I'm going to do. Because I love you, and I love the poor, and I love God. Here's what I'm going to do, boy. You listen to me now. Ready? I got me a harvest, international harvester, 69012. It's the nicest piece of farm machinery ever created by the hands of man. You let me go through the field three, four times. One, two, three, four, five. I get every speck of that grain out of that field. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll write you a check for what you need for the poor. How's that? You know what? Because farm work's awful hard. Don't you know that? And, and, and why should those poor folks have to come out and pick the stuff? It's backbreaking. It's boring. It's terrible. I will write you a check. You set up a welfare office, a clinic, a library, a free school. I don't care what all you do. You know, get some of them liberals from Washington to do it. I'll, I'll pay you. I will pay you what they could take out of the field. Do we have a deal, boy? Absolutely. Yes? We, we absolutely should. What did the Torah say? The Torah says... Well, the Torah what the, says what? that it belongs to them. It doesn't say how know. the value of that has to get to them. No, I disagree with you. That, everybody agree with them? No. What do you think? Yeah. You got to give them dignity. You what? Them what's the difference? Between, what's the difference between the guy writing a check and the? The difference is. The difference is that my way. People are going to get help. That's Your right. way, people are going to starve to death. It is could be. No, well, now, 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 boy, now, here is, here is a problem. Yes, that was a yes, no question. Is right. that what you want? That's to what do? I want to do, but that's not what the Torah says you should do. The Torah says. What does the Torah take, say? The Torah says to take care of the widow. Yeah. It gives a lot of different you're examples. Right. You're right. You're, right. One, you're giving yeah. one example. Moses gives several diatribes during Deuteronomy, yeah. telling the Jews that it's not that hard. Take care of these people. Yeah. Okay, so there's multiple ways to skin no, no, this, no, 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 no. this biblical cat. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> here's, here's, my, here, here's my concern. Ed, Ed, is that Ed? Yes. Why did you say that they have to come get it themselves? Because you can't, you, you, you infantilize people by giving them abject charity. You yeah. have to give them a sense of righteousness, and righteousness, yeah, it's pre pre righteousness presumes them working it themselves so that they feel like they have accomplished Right. Okay. So breaking their back. No, no, you're you're right. I'm not breaking arguing. Their back you're right. And doing it poorly and starving to death is the good way to go. All right. Yeah, you're right. You're right that there are multiple ways to fulfill the commandment. But listen to what he said. Okay. You're right. I'm not arguing. Adding dignity is a different question. No, that's, but that's, that wasn't the question that you asked. But see, the, the, no, but it is. You see, because the question is, why does it say always remember you were a slave in Egypt? To me. What I think here is, and I, I think that you're right, there are many, many ways of doing this, but the question is, what you learned in Egypt was that the worst, the worst degradation of slavery was not the oppression of the body, but the degradation of soul. Absolutely. And if you create a welfare system that manages to feed a man's belly, but doesn't feed the soul, then you have not accomplished anything. Absolutely. Now, that's the point. That's the point. Yes, please. There's another situation when the Bible was written, everybody was agricultural. So the people were not like us city people trying to go in and do something yeah. so unusual. Right. So there's an interesting question about how this law would apply to an urban industrial society or post-industrial society and what it means to leave something for the poor in that sense 
and also and how do you and how do you create a welfare system or a welfare state that protects the body but doesn't degrade the soul of the poor? Now you see what we're getting into now. It's a wonderful conversation. It's a question. See, this is the now we're dealing with the technicalities of living as a blessing. That's exactly what the Talmudic tradition and it's exactly what Jewish ethics is about. I, I know what I want to accomplish, but now how do I do it under the circumstances I'm living in? Yes? Well, Rabbi, I was just going to say in modern times, I mean, it's a difference between help, the, you know, help me, help my family, and we'll work for food. Yeah. You've seen people with signs that right, say, right. we'll work for food. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that, it's a, and a, how do you create a system that prevents poverty, but at the same time doesn't encourage dependency and doesn't destroy people's hearts? Yes. Uh, for fields where actually they are picked by people, yeah. do they, um, do, is this law in effect? In, here? In California? No. In Israel. Israel. In Israel? In Israel? You're shaking your head? I don't know. I would assume that for the religious farmer it's in place, but I don't know. I would hope it would be, but I, I'm afraid that it's not. I'm afraid that it's not. So, so we, we have to finish. So I, I want to I stop. I'm going to stop. I, I, I'll tell you what. I want to do one more line, and then we're going to stop. So look, look at where we've come. I'm going to suggest to you that the narrative. Step back a second. I'm going to suggest to you that we have an exquisitely articulate answer to the kid's question: What's the meaning of life? And you've read it today. The meaning of life is to be a blessing. And it's interesting, it says to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, which is an interesting parallel, an interesting uh, uh, meeting point between what we call Jewish particularism, concern for our own, our own internal narrative, and Jewish universalism, a sense of what we owe the world. And we've talked about the idea that, that, that Abraham then carries this forward because he understands that his job is to stand for justice even in the face of any power, including God himself. And then the Egypt experience becomes the paradigm for the world that we don't want. And I've suggested to you that the Torah presents these two paradigms as if they were two places and we're on a road. Egypt is one possibility for the world and Eden is the other. And humanity fits on that road between the two. That's why the whole Torah story is that journey. And that our job in the world, the meaning of our lives, is to help move humanity from the degradation of Egypt to the oneness of Eden. And that this has to be done, however, not in grand, not in grand heroic acts, but in tiny, tiny gestures of goodness and, and consideration. How do you harvest a field? How do you create a place for the widow and the orphan and the stranger? These are the words, the word that we use for the steps we take to move the world from Egypt to Eden are mitzvot. A mitzvah, in my definition, is not a commandment of God. A mitzvah is the act you take that moves the world one step toward Eden. And an avera, a sin, is the opposite. It's when we move the world backwards. You want to say something? I just wanted to say, for me, uh, it's summed up by saying uh, part of the responsibility for Jews is just to help help heal the world. Right. And all of the kinds of acts that you have been Exactly right. Now that narrative, that's exactly the narrative. 
And, and what's, what's remarkable about that narrative is now you carry that narrative. Now you ask one more last question that the kid's gonna ask us. Okay, so what's in it for me? So what's in it for me? All right, I'll go heal the world, fine. What's in it for me? Well, there's an answer here. So there's a psalm that we say just before Shabbat, Psalm 92. It was later titled Mizmor Shir Liyomar Shabbos. It was a psalm for the, for the Sabbath. But really, it's, it's, not, it, it, it's about a bigger version of what Sabbath is. It starts with the following idea. Tov lahodot ladunai. It is good to praise God, to sing hymns to your name, to proclaim your love at daybreak and the faithfulness each night with a ten-string harp and voice and lyre together. Your creations bring me happiness. I sing for joy at your handiwork. How great are your works, O Lord. How remarkable your designs. A guy wakes up, goes outside, sees the sunshine, and he says to him, you know, it's good to be alive. Now, there are many religious traditions that would tell you the world should not be embraced. Because if you embrace the world, it's going to break your heart. The whole Buddhist tradition is about backing away from the world, because life will break your heart. Jews are the opposite of Buddhists. I and mean, I have a lot of loving Buddhist friends. A Buddhist learns to disengage. A Jew learns to engage. And the tradition is fully aware that if you engage the world and say, Tov, it still has goodness in it, it's going to break your heart. So here's his answer. The ignorant cannot know, a fool cannot understand this that although the wicked sprout like grass and the evil blossom, it is only to be destroyed forever. You are exalted, O Lord, for all time. Your enemies, your enemies perish. All evildoers are scattered. You raise my head high. I'm renewed with anointing oil. I shall yet see the defeat of my tormentors, hear of the downfall of the wicked who beset me. Yes, there's evil in the world, a great deal of it. But it's not, but it's not permanent. It's temporary. And with your efforts, you can bring the world back to Eden. It's a different philosophy than a Buddhist philosophy that says the brokenness of the world is inevitable. In fact, I would put it this way. The opposite of Judaism is not Christianity. The opposite of Judaism is not, is not uh, secularism or, 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 or disbelief. The opposite of, the Judy, of Judaism is surrender. It's the person who says, what is, is what has to be. What is will always be. And there's nothing you can do about it. When you say that, you check yourself out of the people of Abraham. Because the first premise of any Jewish outlook is the first line. Tov, there is goodness in the world yet. It's our job to make it flourish. The moment you say that the brokenness, the evil, the disease of the world is inevitable, that's when you have resigned from the Jewish people. It's going to break your heart. It's going to be hard. It's not for one lifetime. But the struggle to bring the end of evil and the flowering of good in the world is what defines us. And if you devote yourself to that, look at the last verse. The righteous bloom like a date palm. They thrive like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of God, they flourish in the courts of our God. There's a line missing, right? Is a line missing? Yeah, something got left off this, right? And the, the last line of the psalm is, right? Declaring that the Lord is just, my rock in whom there is no unrighteousness. Sadiq. The, the righteous is a person who devotes himself to this vision of God of a world of oneness. 
And if you do that, whether or not you succeed, if that's the, that's, that's, the, that's the vision of your life, that's the narrative of your life, then the Torah promises you that on your very, very last day, when your great-great-grandchildren surround your deathbed and they say to you, Bubby Zayda, was it worth it? You will say, it was very, very good. You will not, let, let me just leave you with this last thought. Being Jewish will not make you thin. <laughs> Trust me on this. Being Jewish will not make you smart. Being Jewish will not make you rich. Being Jewish will not make you popular. It's not designed to do that. You know what it's designed to do? It's designed to give you a life that matters. So that on your very last day in the world, you can say, Tov, it is good. And if you devote yourself to this, it does that exceedingly, exceedingly well. That, in the biblical eye, is the meaning of life.